welcome uh, everyone to Freeway this morning. My name's Andy, and uh, I'm here for just a few more weeks filling in for Mason while he's on leave. Um, thanks so much for your warm welcome to me last uh, Sunday. I got to join a group of ladies for lunch on Friday. I don't often get invited to ladies' lunch, but uh, I was happy to be there this Friday. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you. Um, uh, just a, a reminder that uh, I'm available for whatever you need while I'm here, so you can feel free to contact me via that same uh, number. The message will get to me as well. Um, but today we're continuing this journey through Luke's Gospel. And if you were here last week or if you watched online, you'll remember uh, we looked at the transfiguration and what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. We talked about the importance that Jesus places on his own death and the ways in which not only the disciples, but also the entire nation of Israel misunderstood him and the role that he was about to play. We wrapped up thinking about how we listen to God today and the, the importance of making this a central part of our relationship with him. Today we're looking at this collection of events that, depending on the version that you're looking at in your Bibles, um, are all broken up by these different headings, but they are all talking about one conversation. Those little headings are actually not part of the original manuscripts of the Bible. They began to be added in the 11th and 12th century. And, uh, and new versions continue to use them and to make up new titles for these sections, but they're not always particularly helpful. Um, they give us the translator's view of what the section is meant to be about, but this doesn't always reflect the intention of the original authors. A good example of this is in Genesis 9, which is often titled God's Covenant with Noah. But in actual fact, God in this uh, section of scripture, is making his covenant with all of creation. We know that God is concerned with everything that he's made and that he's set upon redeeming all creation, not only humanity. It's humans who like to read ourselves as the central characters of scripture. Um, but in reality, scripture is the story of God working to redeem everything that he has made in spite of human action. When we look back to Genesis 1, we read that God created everything good everything fit for its purposes, and designed to be in right relationship with everything else. Uh, when I teach Genesis 1 at the college, I like to draw a triangle that illustrates the reciprocal, loving relationships that God intended for the world. At the top point, of course, sits God. Uh, at one corner sits humanity, and at the third is the rest of creation. We know, though, that humanity chose to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which went against God's design. Any behavior that goes against God's design we refer to now as sin, and we know that it brings damage to relationships. In Genesis 3, God explains how humanity's relationship to God, to the land that they live upon, and to one another were damaged as a result of their sin. The ancient world believed that sin had a tangible quality, like it was a, an oil that would cover you and uh, had a, a true uh, tangibility. And the only way to remove it from yourself was to restore the relationship that you had damaged by making it up to the other party somehow. God builds a covenant with the Jewish people and instigates the temple system, which achieved exactly this. It was a system by which people could sacrifice an animal in order to atone for their sins. In spite of this, the Jewish people were never able to fulfill the covenant they made with God, and so God himself enters into creation to enact phase two of his plan for world salvation. God is born as a human baby named Jesus who lives a life perfectly aligned to God, without sin, and his life serves as an example for what it means to follow God, to live as a human, 
before giving up his life as a once and for all atoning sacrifice to repair all relationships for all time across the entirety of creation. We know, though, that Jesus was resurrected, exemplifying God's defeat of sin and death. And now he offers a new covenant relationship whereby those of us who seek forgiveness for sin and to live in right relationship with God are welcomed into God's family. Not only that, but God comes to live inside of us as the Holy Spirit, who further transforms us into God's original design for us, but also empowers us for the work of the Christian life, which Paul describes as the ministry of reconciliation, teaching us in 2 Corinthians 5 that we live now as ambassadors of God, representing his interests to people who don't know him. And we already know what these are. We know what God is interested in. It's about encouraging others to live the way that we were made to live, in right relationship with one another, with the rest of creation, and with God. In Luke, it's a lawyer who summarizes this to Jesus by saying that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. The great hope of Christians, of course, is that Jesus will return to bring about a final and total restoration of all things. We read in Revelation 21 that at that time, the home of God will be among mortals. He will dwell with them, they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more, mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things will have passed away. So as we turn to the Gospel of Luke again this morning, we have this broader narrative in mind. Today's passage uh, largely talks about a series of events whereby the disciples show just how much they don't understand what Jesus is about or who he really is. And so we're going to spend some time this morning in this passage before thinking about the idea of hospitality and this question of exactly how far does the hospitality of God extend? So our passage begins uh, the day after the transfiguration. We read from verse 37 on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met Jesus. Just then a man from the crowd shouted, teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He's my only child. Suddenly a spirit seizes him and all at once he shrieks. It convulses him until he foams at the mouth. It mauls him and will scarcely leave him. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Now, Mark also tells us about this series of events, but he includes a little bit more information. Mark begins his narrative as Jesus, Peter, James, and John rejoin the other disciples who didn't go up the mountain. From Mark 9.14, we read, When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. When the whole crowd saw Jesus, they were immediately overcome with awe and they ran toward him to greet him. He asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do so. So here in Mark's version, we find that there's some kind of dispute going on among the disciples or rather between the disciples who didn't go up the mountain with Jesus and a group of scribes who weren't leaders in the Jewish temple system, but were an integral part of it. These are people who are copying out the law over and over and over. So they, they know exactly what scripture says. Presumably they are arguing with the remaining disciples over this spirit that they're trying to remove from this child, but we don't know for sure. In both versions, though, the father is despairing over his son, and he describes a series of symptoms that 
To some, comment co <coughs> excuse me, some commentators sound like epilepsy, causing them to believe that the problem was simply attributed to a spirit because the ancient world didn't have a physical or medical explanation uh, for what was happening to this child. The uh, Australian New Testament scholar Leon Morris, though, writes, the symptoms sound much like those of epilepsy, and many class the illness as such without further ado. As this, however, is attributed to demon possession, this may be a trifle too confident. He thinks that if that's what the gospel writers believe this was, then they must have had a reason to do so. But again, we can't really be sure. Another New Testament scholar, Brendan Byrne, describes the event this way. He says, Jesus rebukes the spirit, heals the boy, and in a typical Lucan touch, gives him back to his father. Once again, a family finds healing, which I think is a, a rather beautiful way to describe the work of Jesus here. The interesting part of this passage is Jesus' reaction to the father's words. In Luke's version, verse 41 reads, You faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. Now, these are fairly strong words from Jesus, and Luke's telling of the story is contracted to emphasize exactly this passage. And it, it almost reads as though he's speaking to the father or to his son, but that doesn't really seem consistent with what we know about Jesus' character or, or with the rest of the story. Knowing that there is a large crowd there, as well as a group of scribes, Morris thinks that these words are directed to them. He says, people were seeing the miracles that Jesus is performing, like this exorcism, as wonders, but not as signs of God's presence and of his demand for repentance. So perhaps Jesus' frustration is with the lack of faith of the people that he has come to save. In verse 43, however, we read that all were astounded by the greatness of God, but perhaps this astonishment didn't lead to any real change in their relationship with God. So from verse 44, we read that as this is playing out, Jesus turns to his disciples and he reminds them of his impending death. Now, the timing seems fairly odd, uh, but this is apparently what happens. And again, the disciples don't really understand. In fact, we read that the meaning was concealed from them so that they could not perceive it. We read in the epistles a tradition of God blessing people with faith and understanding. So perhaps it was God himself who concealed this knowledge from them. Although Morris, again, thinks it has something to do with the nondescript evil forces that are at play in these passages. But as if to show how little they really understand about what's going on, in the next set of, of passages, the disciples begin to argue about which one of them is the greatest. I can't imagine if I had just finished telling a whole group of people that I was going to die for the sins of all creation, how frustrated I would be if they then turned around and started arguing about which one of them was the greatest. Jesus takes a different tack this time. Instead of just telling them off, he brings a child into the conversation and explains from verse 48, whoever welcomes this child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, for the least among all of you is the greatest. On this passage, Byrne tells us that Jesus disarms their pretensions by taking a little child and speaking of what we might call a chain of welcome, running from the child to himself to his father. In Jesus' perspective, the route to the welcoming of God into one's life and community runs through the little ones represented by this child. It's they who access and channel the hospitality of God. 
Morris has a similar view, and he, he writes, The child stands for the helpless and the unimportant. The test of loving service is that we receive such in the name of Christ. To receive the child is to receive Christ, and to receive Christ is to receive the Father. True greatness is not earthly greatness, but it's antithesis. The really great person is the lowly one. Jesus is not saying that the great person is one who is ready to serve their stint in a lowly place. Rather, the one who is the least is the one who is great. In the kingdom, people do not compare themselves with one another. John responds with a slightly different question to Byrne or to Morris. In verse 49, he's trying to figure out the exact parameters of Jesus' instruction here. Surely he doesn't mean we have to welcome everybody. Surely he just means something to the effect of uh, welcome those who are tolerable or welcome those who are nice or uh, welcome other Christians, but not anyone else. So he brings up an example of someone who is surely outside the bounds of God's hospitality. He says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. And Jesus' answer is, is kind of a double slap in the face to the disciples because you'll remember that some of their number had just failed to cast out a demon at the top of the passage. And so Jesus says to him, do not stop him, for whoever is not against you is for you. Now, in John's defense, under the old covenant, there were many rules around ritual cleanliness that involved removing yourself from particular groups of people. And in John's day, the religious leaders had expanded these rules in order to increase their own power and influence, people were more and more segregated. Another important fact to remember is that the disciples are quite young men uh, in their late teens or early 20s, and the human brain doesn't finish developing into the mid to late 20s. Uh, so these aren't people in full possession of their adult mental capacity. In spite of this, though, Byrne writes that the disciples are misguided. The community of the kingdom, he writes, does not have to cling to its prerogatives in an exclusivist way. If God's grace, which has been shown to be so effective on the margins of the community, can also operate beyond them, that is something to welcome rather than deplore. The narrative of Acts will show the Spirit constantly out in front of the church's understanding. In a similar vein, Morris writes that for these disciples, it was not enough that the exorcists should be able to do in the name of Jesus, which they had so recently and so conspicuously failed to do, he had to follow with them. And this has been the era of Christians in every age, and it's interesting to see it in the very first generation of Jesus' followers. As Morris points out, this way of thinking continues to be a problem in the modern church. We often fail to understand how far God's hospitality extends. Although it's hardly complex, it simply extends to all people. Jesus makes this plain earlier in chapter 6 of the gospel when Luke records him saying, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies. Do good and lend expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. We know though that this isn't always how the church has behaved. 
We have a bit of a tendency to cling to our own rules and to the things that make us comfortable. Our worship spaces are deeply personal and highly valued. But hospitality requires sacrifice. Even if I enjoy someone's company, I still give of my time, perhaps my space, perhaps my possessions or my money, in order to show good hospitality. And so I want to invite you this morning to consider again what you, we as a church, are prepared to give up in order to show God's hospitality to the community of Chelsea. At one of my past churches, we built a great relationship with this emergency relief organization. Um, This organization provided for the most marginalized and hard-done people in our wider community in a way that our church community simply wasn't uh, equipped to be able to do. We didn't have the infrastructure or the expertise or the relationships or the kind of governmental know-how to be able to navigate all of that. And yet we had people in the church who took exception to the fact that this wasn't a Christian organization. Um, I had 2 Corinthians 6 quoted to me frequently, the passage that talks about not being uh, unequally yoked to believers. Although that passage is about worship, it's not about community service. Um, Some in the community suggested that we establish our own emergency relief organization. Uh, I don't know if anyone works in that space, but you would be aware that that is an incredibly big undertaking, uh, not easily achievable. Alternatively, uh, they were happy for us to partner with the Salvation Army, perhaps, uh, but we didn't really have a local Salvation Army uh, in the area. Um, Ironically, their big issue was that they wouldn't be able to share their faith with the clients who accessed uh, the service. Uh, But when I asked them with whom they were sharing their faith with currently, they didn't really have much of an answer for me. Additionally, the organization was actually really excited about the idea of us running some kind of small group or prayer group for their clients, uh, anything to connect them with broader community. I never really received a satisfactory answer from these people about why we shouldn't be partnering with this organization, Um, especially once I pointed out that Jesus spends most of his time with the kind of people this organization sought to care for. I felt the issue simply came down to one of comfort and power. In the minds of these people, it simply cost them too much to be able to engage with the kinds of people this organization served. And they were afraid that this organization would begin to dictate to the church how they were able to serve. I quoted Byrne earlier saying, the community of the kingdom does not have to cling to its prerogatives in an exclusivist way. If God's grace, which has been shown to be so effective on the margins of their community, can also operate beyond them, that's something to welcome rather than deplore. The narrative of Acts will show the Spirit constantly out in front of the church's understanding. And he's right. We read throughout the book of Acts that God is leading the fledgling church out of their comfort zone. Acts 10 and 11 is a great example where God is making it clear that the new covenant is also open to Gentiles. Those, those who aren't from a, a Jewish background. For those who have come to follow Jesus from a Jewish background, this was a really hard pill to swallow. Hospitality becomes an issue for them throughout the epistles. Managing the relationship between Jews and Gentiles in the church is one of the key topics that Paul writes upon. In the book of Romans in particular, Paul makes it clear that being able to eat and to worship together is vital for the community of faith. And that each party will have to give something up in order to be able to live as God intends together in right relationship. I heard last week uh, about some of the ways that God has led the community of faith here at Freeway beyond your comfort zone. 
particularly in the process of, of planning the community to begin with and purchasing this building. On reflection, the leading of God is always obvious. We can always look back and say, oh yeah, that's where God was leading me. But this isn't always the case beforehand. We know the old saying, hindsight is 2020. And this is the reason that sacrifice in order to follow God is difficult, because we simply don't know what's going to happen next. We don't know if our sacrifice is going to really bear good fruit. But this is what it means to be people of faith, trusting God when we don't always know what the outcome will be, or if it's an outcome that will benefit us. Jesus himself did the same thing. In theology, we we use this idea, uh, we use this word rather, kenosis. It's a way to describe Jesus emptying himself or, or being willing to sacrifice himself in order to follow God's will. And the word itself comes from a passage in Philippians 2, which reads, Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. And then this is, this is the word kenosis. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we are called as his followers to the same kinds of kenotic action, to give of ourselves in order to follow the will of God. While Paul here is, is writing in Philippians on a very grand scale, acts of kenosis are part of our everyday following of God as well. Hospitality is a kenotic act because it requires us to give something of ourselves to show care and to create space for our fellow human. God calls us not only to kenotic acts, big and small, but to a kenotic life. Jesus is recorded by Luke just a few verses earlier here in chapter 9 saying, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will save it. In a moment, we're going to celebrate communion together, the ultimate symbol of the hospitality of God. But before that, I want to conclude by telling you a bit about two women who I worshipped with at Q Baptist Church. Their names were Bev and Val, and in their retirement, they moved in with each other, and they seemed to be the most fun housemates going around. These two women must have been in their, maybe their 70s, maybe late 60s, and, uh, and they used to commit themselves to praying for the rest of our community. And if you made it onto their prayer list, which was stuck to their fridge, you knew that you were being prayed for every single day. These women both had Order of Australia medals for their services to young people. Uh, each one of them had fostered over 120 children uh, across their lifetimes. Extraordinary act of hospitality. And so there were two exceptional women. They used to say to us young people at the church that a successful Christian life is simply the culmination of a series of small, faithful decisions. They didn't wake up one morning and decide, you know what would look really good on my wall here? There's an Order of Australia medal. I'm going to go out and get one of those. They simply followed the will of God, and it resulted in an extraordinary ministry of hospitality to hundreds of young people. I want to say to you this morning that in the same way, our small, faithful acts of hospitality can become something extraordinary when we follow the will of God provided that we're also willing to give something of ourselves to see that hospitality come to fruition. We're going to gather now at the communion table, which is the greatest symbol that we have of God's hospitality. 
The very first senior pastor that I worked under, a man named Rod Pell, used to remind us that if you love the Lord Jesus a little and you want to learn to love him more, this table is for you. If you love your fellow human a little and you wish to learn how to love them better, this table is for you. Jesus himself is recorded in Matthew's gospel saying, Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray together. Loving God, we are grateful for your goodness to us. Christ, we are grateful that you chose to be born to lead a life that is an example to each of us for what it means to be human, but to give of yourself in order to die so that our sins, the sins of all creation, might be removed. We give great thanks for your resurrection that has meant that we now are able to join your family. And we're grateful, God, for your inclusion of us uh, who are not worthy of inclusion in the family of God, and yet you have seen us and loved us because you created us and you desire us to be members of your family. We pray this morning, God, that as we have taken communion and, and remembered our inclusion in your family, we might also remember our responsibility to include others, um, to make pathways for others uh, to join your family of, of love and of goodness. So Spirit, knowing that you dwell amongst us, we pray that you would help us to consider um, not only what Christ has done for us, but uh, what it might mean for us to give of ourselves in order to show greater hospitality. Um, Spirit, may you remind us as a church community um, of the same question. What can we give up? What ought we give up in order to show good and, and uh, godly hospitality to the community here at Freeway? Uh, and to the wider community here in Chelsea. So we ask for your blessing as we consider these things. In the name of Christ. Amen.